Hey, everybody. Market is back. We're super excited, except for Bitcoin. Anyways, welcome to The Green Room, and we are here with episode 300. We've got a number of amazing guests here all in The Green Room, and we'll just quickly go by and ask people where they're calling in from and what we'll be talking about. So, um, And we'll start with our guests. They're going to be surprise appearances since they're already here. <laughs> so Whitney, <laughs> welcome. I just, just recognize you. Say hello. So welcome. Where are you calling in from? I am calling in from Steamboat, uh, Colorado, where my team is doing an offsite today. Ooh, I love Steamboat. All right. Gurvinder, where are you calling in from? Excited to be here. Congratulations on 300. I am joining from Wipro's headquarters in US, East Brunswick. Glad to be here. All right. Hey, thanks for being here. And John, welcome. Yeah, calling in from Western Mass here. I got a little surprise for y'all today for number 300. All I can tell you is it's a little bit roasty. That's oh, all I can do. Uh oh, we'll have to deal with the, with the duck. All right, Christopher, where are you calling in from? Hey, I don't know how to follow that up. No surprises, but glad to be here. Uh, Princeton, New Jersey. All right. Oded, where are you calling in from? Hi, uh, happy 300th birthday. I'm calling from uh, New York City. Excellent. And Paul, what about you? I am calling in from Connecticut. Excellent. Mm -hmm. And of course, Grad, what are you calling in from? What are we talking about? Nice poster. Houston, Texas. <laughs> Ooh, all right. And that's Paris. Well, with that, I say here's Houston my awesome is Paris of the West. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm here with my awesome co-host, Paul Ashar, and our amazing producer, Elle. And it is episode 300. Elle, take it away. All right. Three, two, one. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for joining us on the 300th episode of Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guest, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. And if you're blue check verified, we'll answer you. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> it's my... $10. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's my pleasure to introduce my co-host Ray Wong. He is the CEO founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in the World of Digital Giants. Ray is on TV just about every day on Fox Business, Bloomberg, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, and Yahoo Finance. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome Ray Wong to the 300th episode of Disrupt TV. 
Hey, thank you. Back at you, my amazing partner and co-creator of Disrupt TV, Val Afshar, who's the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. And if you're an executive anywhere around the world, you've probably seen him on Twitter, in live, in speeches. And of course, when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet, especially of this show. But it's been 300 amazing episodes together. Vala, and you know, who do we have to kick it off? We have a, an amazing uh, chief marketing officer, Grant Khan, who's a CMO of Pros, graduate employees in May of this year, and serves as chief uh, marketing officer responsible for global marketing and growth strategies for the company. A prolific publisher of blogs and podcasts, conquered, anchored in rich narrative and storytelling, Grant brings strong personal philosophy instead of professional accomplishments spanning both business to consumer and business to business markets. Speaking of ZDNet, ZDNet described Grad as a near-perfect example oh, no, no, not that close. of what a tech company CMO <laughs> should be. <laughs> yeah, I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> you were jinxing yourself. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Prior to pros, Grad was uh, you know, CMO at Sprinkler, where he served, again, as chief experience and marketing officer. Prior to Sprinkler, Grad spent more than a decade, 12 years at Microsoft, uh, seven of which he served as CMO for Microsoft U.S., He's received multiple creative awards and technology right, patents right. throughout his career. You can follow him at GradCon, G-R-A-D-C-O-N-N. Welcome, Brad, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. I'm so honored to be on your 300th show. That is really, really, really cool. Hopefully, I could be on your 1,000th show as well. I, I think so. I look forward to that. Thanks. So that bio, I, you got it from my mom, right? Like, what happened there? That was Listen, I had to... I had to cut your bio. I had to cut your bio because we only have a 20 minute. Holy segment. smokes. And That's a cut a down version. Yowzers. <laughs> we we got to work on that. Grad's a deeply flawed human being who makes many mistakes. Most of them at work. Most successful CMOs. But many many are... notable ones in his personal life as well. I, mean, I, really, I really need to. Well, you know, really if you don't that. try and if you don't take a shot, how will you succeed, right? And I failures breed amazing success. I've tried a lot. I have definitely tried and, a lot. Yeah. And, and Grad, who can we ask? I mean, look, I mean, B2B is so boring. Our job is to make it Whoa, exciting and consumer focused, right? And you're the one that has been doing that for years years right yeah. trying to make b2b marketing more like b2c more personalized exactly. yeah. right and let's start with that i mean you've done so many things in the space right i mean when you think about where you are around the consumerization of b2b what are some of the big trends i mean you're a pros it doesn't get more b2b than that so <laughs> yeah um I, you know it's it's interesting that this whole b2b b2c questions is actually fascinated me most of my marketing career I started at Procter & Gamble. So I started in the core of packaged goods and I was like literally selling Tide and all the usual suspects there. But um, I do find it funny that we would like look at what a person, and this is actually a kind of Microsoft. I was um, in charge of the B2B business because Microsoft US is a B2B sub. And we would look at a person and say, that person's super cool and hip and plays Xbox, you know, and is an Xbox user and they subscribe to all the services and that's really awesome. Um, and we'll talk to them in a hip, cool, connected, gamey kind of way. But somehow when they get into the office or when they used to go in the <laughs> office or when they sit at their desk in front of their computer and go to work, um, they're like a boring like robot that needs speeds and feeds. I always find it 
interesting that we could somehow somehow section people in our minds like that. It's uh, I think a very interesting example of the classic human problem of stereotyping. And uh, I actually think that it's perfectly okay to entertain people and to have a conversation with them that they want to be part of. And I'll, I'll, I'll use an example. It's from B2C, but it is a category that behaved like this for a long time, which is insurance. And if you look oh, yeah. at insurance advertising going back you know, decades, it, it tended to be pretty boring, um, m m a little scary, like, what's going to happen to your children, like that kind of stuff. And uh, not particularly fun to watch. And it tended to be kind of a bit of a speeds and feeds kind of a approach too. And then Geico came along and they're like, uh, we're talking to human beings here. Why don't we have some fun with it? They had some continuing characters, created a number of campaigns. Then Progressive got in the act and now Liberty Mutual's in the act. Like if you see that entire category is transformed because they're the all ads. copying each other, not directly, but they're all like inspired yeah. by each other. And now that's probably one of the most innovative though. I saw a great ad the other day for Progressive. They have this new Dr. Rick character. <laughs> it helps you unbecome <laughs> your parents, right? And I'm a big fan yep. of continuing characters and we'll get into this as we talk about prose. And, uh, and they actually have published a book by Dr. Rick that you can buy on Amazon on how to unbecome your parents. It's got 4.2 star rating and 1,300 reviews. Unbelievable. It does. And this awesome. is Bill Glass. He's just hanging there as a self-help coach. I mean, it's, it's awesome. Just, no, it's so brilliant. Anyway, so I, I, I feel like that, you know, the consumerization of B2B, which is a term that's been around a couple of years, it, it traces to a few things. There's like, and I'd say there's sort of multiple vectors on it. There's a vector around how we have to sort of service that as a company. Um, things like um, self-service, um, the way that um, you know maintenance was run, the way that you get help, the way that helps you know community. Like there's a bunch of stuff there. I'll get to that in a second. Then there's a there's a whole sort of theme around marketing and advertising and conversations. And then there's the journey that the customer goes on themselves. And I want to I want to start there because that the customer experience and the journey of the customer to discover the products that they're going to use to help their company succeed, I think is super interesting. And, and Constellation is a very, very, very big part of that ecosystem. And what's so there's a great Gartner uh, number that 64 percent of first time first time visitors to a B2B website, so the B2B stat. It's really important that the word first time is remembered here. So first time visitors, 64% of them have already decided to buy the product. That wow. is such a mind-blowing stat. But if you read almost every B2B website out there, they all talk to the customer like they've never heard of them before. Mm -hmm. Right. So they and um and I and I and I, I think that's a Knowing that the majority of people coming to your site have already made a decision to buy it uh, or have made a decision that you're in a select set yeah. uh, is really important. How they do that, they go to Constellation, right? They talk to influencers. They talk to other analysts. They go and they do searches. But they're looking at third-party sites as a way to make that decision. Why are they doing that? Right? So why is third-party? Well, Third party is pretty important in every category of purchasing now. Like the other day I was buying like some toilet paper and I read the reviews. <laughs> <laughs> I 
hold on a second. <laughs> Not for that That's reason. Awesome. Not for that reason. <laughs> because what I know is that sometimes the picture in Amazon is not what they actually ship. Like they'll, it looks like, you know, sort of 12 rolls, but you get a gross or whatever. Right. You know, so, yep, so yep, I yep, read yep. the reviews to see if what they were shipping was what they were saying they were, and they, they were and I'm very happy with the purchase, but I, you, you read reviews for everything now and particularly in B2B because what's, what's interesting about B2B to me is that I think all B2B companies are selling one product whether they're selling nail or whether they have nails as their vehicle or whether it's tractors or, or it's in the technology space like ourselves, the software, everyone in B2B is selling the same product. Can you, can you, you probably know this, but just play with me a little bit. What would you guess that is? Experience. Peace of mind. Very close. Very close. Career success. Yeah. Right. Yeah. People buy these things so that they can, be successful in their career. And then there's a, and think of that as like the big bar, right? The, mm -hmm. And then there's a little bar underneath that, which is, I also want to make sure that this decision doesn't get me fired. Yep. And there's a, an old expression that most people don't remember anymore, but at one point in time, they used to say, no one ever got fired for buying IBM. This is mm -hmm. kind of 60s, 70s, you know, oh, yeah. early 80s. Yeah. And, there, and the whole point of that expression was that, you know, your way of guaranteeing that your career would be secure would be to buy the market leader. And if something went wrong, you could at least defend and say, I mean, I went with the people who kind of defined the space. I mean, they invented the space and that's who I went with and it didn't go well. And I'm really sorry, but at least I made a good initial decision. So that's mm -hmm. a big part of it. So what happens is that third party becomes very important in B2B. Because I need to make a decision that is less, that is unlikely to get me fired and is likely to get me promoted. That's it. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So then so then it comes to the marketing and advertising piece. And, and this is where most sites are sort of just pitching their wares. I think engaging in a more B2C way is, is a overdue and a fun thing to do, but it's also a very helpful thing to do if you have the mindset that this person is thinking about their career. Because when they come there and they see something that's got a continuing character, kind of classic B2C elements, we're doing this right now with something we're, we've got running. Uh, if you see a good design, uh, if you see uh, things that help you pitch your peers and your boss and you know, coach up your team, it, it feels like, okay, I'm in, a, I'm in a good ecosystem here. If you go to the help, a lot of people look at, a lot of companies keep their help behind a login big mistake, like big mistake or communities behind a login, huge, -ish, huge mistake. Cause I actually want to see the community. How active is it? Do they respond to questions? Do they get back to people quickly? Like what's it going to feel like to be a customer? And that, so that, and that, that all that research and all that feeling as people go into the marketing advertising, they're, they're really like, they're trying on the clothes. Right? What's this going to yeah. be like? I, I oh, yeah. hear they're the leader. What's it going to feel like? And so that's where I think marketing and advertising needs to change in the category. And then from a technology standpoint, how do we make it easy to try it? How do we make it easy to set up? How do we make it easy to sell service? How do we make it easy to get help? And how do we make the community something that provides a, a you know kind of useful input and useful advice and ways of working? How do we create marketplaces that make you and allow you to make to extend it? You know, Salesforce has done this brilliantly. Right, like the whole force.com platform is like a brilliant expression of sort of that marketplace. And I think one of the things that was such a breakthrough idea when Salesforce did it, and I 
I know it was a breakthrough idea because I was at Microsoft at the time and everyone said, oh my God, this is a breakthrough idea. So <laughs> quoting people there. Uh, and uh, and it was what was great about it is that the, the, the reality is that everybody in every business and in every industry has like, they have like tweaks, right? They, they've got to look at it a certain way. They've got a type of financial reporting they need to do. They've got a certain way of, they've got different language. They've got, you know, just every industry has got its own little tweaks. And uh, what, what Salesforce was able to do is someone would say, well, I'm in the, you know, I'm in the chicken coop industry, you know, and I need this chicken coop thing or whatever. And Salesforce would say, well, there is, there's an app on our platform for that, you know, and, and they'd be able to basically able to plug every single hole. Right. And this goes again to this whole objection handling. And I think, well, geez, what a great decision to go with Salesforce because they have the chicken coop plug-in that I needed. So I knew I, I wasn't getting into. Oh, no, no, it's even better. It's ethical, it's ethical animal husbandry. <laughs> wow. There you go. <laughs> All kidding aside, we know that that exists, right? That's a thing somewhere, right? Anyway, so that's, that's a little bit, uh, a little bit of a long way to answer, but, but it is like, I, I'm very passionate about it. And I think that B2B has, um, it's so much potential to have so much fun because we're doing something that's emotionally so deeply connected to what's most important to people. Because your career is, there's a very short jump from career to supporting my family, supporting myself, yeah. you know, living a good life, being able to retire and live in a nice place. Like it, it, it's, it is the thing that's connected to everything. When that string gets pulled, everything falls apart. And so I think B2B should be the most creative industry because it's dealing with people in their most important moment. No, absolutely. So much, so much to unpack there um, in, in your answer. Well, it's and a good thing we have three hours, so we'll yeah, be able to, yeah, yeah. get into it. <laughs> but I mean, you know, ultimately, ultimately, it doesn't surprise me the Gartner stat of sixty-four percent. I mean, you know, the mobile and social revolution yeah. I think has democratized access to information. Great so point. You yeah. can connect to influences like Constellation or Gartner or yourself and others, peers that you respect. Uh, leading the lines of business similar to what you're doing. My question to you as a successful CMO, what advice do you have to marketeers who, you know, in speaking in this consumerization, personalization, they're, they're humanizing the business, whether it's the constant character or they're active on digital channels and they're generous and they're building platforms and communities like the app exchange you mentioned that now has over 10,000 chicken coop apps <laughs> on there. Wow. Uh, Just coops. Uh, it's amazing. What, <laughs> how, how do you, how do you make sure the marriage experience is better than the courtship experience so that you don't have buyer's oh, remorse? I like um, that. You don't have yeah. buyer's remorse when you're going for with a company that's not a market leader, whether it's an IBM or a Cisco or a Salesforce, whomever is leading the market. If you're number two or number 10, you may, as you said, uh, face buyer's remorse when things go wrong. So you do have to constantly make sure that the marriage experience is better than courtship. How do you do that as a marketeer? Yeah, so um, there's there's some interesting ways of going about this, but I'm going to give a kind of simplistic answer. And I, I don't, I'm not trying to be uh, facetious when I say this, but at the end of the day, your marriage experience, I like that way of putting it, the end of the day, your marriage experience is going to be based on the culture of the company. Mm. And, and people talk about culture, you know, there's, is a very popular kind of hand wave on culture, but if you really want to understand the culture of the company, go on Glassdoor, mm. you know, go on blind, like find out what the culture of the company is. <laughs> it's actually not <laughs> that hard to actually find out what the real culture is. 
And when you see a broken culture, um, that's going to be a bad marriage. And, and I, I, and I, I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons I came, I don't know if it's one of the reasons, maybe the reason, uh, one of the major reasons I came to pros is that uh, this culture is extraordinary. This is an amazing place, like an amazing place. Mm -hmm. And what's incredible about it is that the people are here for very long periods of time. Mm -hmm. Like in the course of a day, I'll regularly meet people who've been here 12, 15, 20, 25 years. It's an incredible, it's a very much, it's got some of the best elements of Microsoft. And, uh, and people love being here. Many people had their whole career here. They came out of school and they, they're here and they'll, they'll stay here forever. Um, I met someone the other day and it was so funny. It was a very senior person and someone asked them how long they'd been in the company. And, and he sort of laughed and he said, almost self-consciously, I'm kind of a bit of a newcomer. I've just you know, only been here eight years. <laughs> and, and, it's like, and when you, when you look at attrition rates, when you look at longevity, when you look at that kind of yeah, stuff, yeah. there's a re people don't stay places that aren't good. That's just a fact. And you can understand why when you read the reviews. And so I think that that's how, you know, and it's a little bit like, you know, in arranged marriages, um, which are, are still quite popular in parts of the world. Um, I, I, um, my marriage, marriage is being arranged by Barry Diller. So that was a little <laughs> bit of a different way. But, uh, but in a classic arranged marriage, uh, in a classic arranged marriage, um, what happens is the families actually do a lot of research and kind of background checking on, oh, yeah. and oh, yeah. is this a good family? Because if, if the family is strong and if the family is good, then it's likely to be a good partnership. And what's fascinating to me is that arranged marriages have an extremely low divorce rate. There's such a very oh, yeah. successful form of marriage. And I think it's because they look at the culture that's going into it. And so for me, it's you got to find a culture match. And uh, and that that means, and I think that's very democratizing because uh, you can find an amazing culture in a very small company. Yeah. Uh, and you can find wow. a very dysfunctional culture in a very large company. So I don't think necessarily that biggest is best, um, but uh, you, know, you can have the, and I would say that Satya has a, done an amazing job at Microsoft where well, he's grad. done a culture flip. Yeah. Yeah, no, well, Grad, you know, this is this is amazing. We're, we're going from Tinder to Angie's List, right? All in one thing, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's relationship exactly there. how we met, Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, we're with Brad Khan, one of the uh, top CMOs <laughs> in the world. He's taking taking charge at Pros and, of course, transforming the world of B2B to B2C. And, of course, more importantly, congratulations on future nuptials. So thank you, know, thank you for being on the show in episode 300. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. You can follow GradCon, CMO Pros, Twitter at GradCon. So thanks a lot. Yeah, you know, uh, marketeers have uh, quite a bit of challenge in these uncertain times to make sure that the culture, core values, and, you know, the soul of the company is revealed in the narrative and how they connect with stakeholders. Okay, we have uh, three amazing uh, authors uh, on our show. We have Christopher Frank, Paul Maloney, and Odette Netzer, authors of Decisions Over Decimals, Striking the Balance Between Intuition and Information. Christopher Frank is Vice President of Global Marketplace Insights on American Express, where he leads the Communication Brand Research and Analytics Group. He's an adjunct professor at Columbia University. Paul Maloney is head of uh, Global Strategic Alliances at Google, where he's developing a growing ecosystem of partners that will unlock the next generation of business value via the cloud and related technologies. Paul is an adjunct faculty member at Columbia University. 
And Odette Netzer is Vice Dean of Research and Arthur J. Samberg, Professor of Business at Columbia Business School, an affiliate of Columbia Data Science Institute and an Amazon scholar. Uh, Odette is a world-renowned expert in data-driven decision-making and extracting meaningful insights from data. Welcome, Chris, Paul, and Odette to Disrupt TV. Thank, Thank you. Before you ask, this was an arranged marriage. <laughs> Wait, no, it wasn't. No, never mind. No, it wasn't. It's a marriage of convenience. It's a marriage of convenience. <laughs> Getting three extraordinary minds to agree on a narrative and a thesis and a book. That is a strong marriage for sure. That's for sure. You know, this is an amazing book, uh, Decisions Over Decimals. And, and part of the reason this is really important is, you know, when we think about what's happening, like we've been told that they should be data-driven, right? We've got to be data-driven our decision-making. But what we really know is we got to strike the right balance between information and intuition. And this is really what's where we're headed in this world. So, you know, uh, we've been long told that data-informed decisions remove human bias. These are the best decisions. But you're telling us that's not true. So why is that? Yeah, that, that's that's actually how we we ended up with this thing. I mean, all of us are are grounded in data, both feet both feet in the data. We have among the three of us, we have, um, you know, two engineers and two data scientists within three people, right? Uh, um, all of us met met on Tinder, of course, but uh, um, with, with, with all of Tinder these, for uh, decisions. Uh, yeah, and we realized that even though we are grounded in data, and you know, big data came, capital B, capital B, with all of the buzz that came with it, and there was a promise that. Finally, no, all of the biases would go away, biases that comes with making these intuitive gut type of decisions. And we realized that that's not true, meaning we are now, you know, the dust has settled on big data. We very much enjoy the value of data and it's truly valuable, but we still need to use intuition to make decisions. Uh, uncertainty did not fully go away, right? Uh, but the type of intuition is actually a different type of intuition, the type of intuition that we need today uh, it's the type of intuition to sift through them the the streams of data to define well the problem to 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 look at the data from a very integrated perspective and eventually to act on it as opposed to simply spinning with the data as many of us uh, tend to do. We tend we call this type of skills this type of new intuition that came after with the with the world of big data. We call it quantitative intuition, which is exactly this balance between intuition and data. Yeah, I think the, the, the other thing to keep in mind, you know, data is almost like a security blanket. You know, mm -hmm. we th there's a cliche, what gets measured gets done. And it just seems like everything is getting measured today. And I think you ask a lot of people, regardless of the size of organization or industry, do you feel like you're getting more done? Are decisions being made in a more agile way? Are they better decisions? And the, the answer is no. And the what we put forth and discuss in the book is, something we call the, the certainty myth, that the more data you have, the more certain you will be of the answer and you will arrive at, at the perfect decision. And that is uh, just false. Um, more data will not give you um, the better answer and the perfect decision Whoa. doesn't exist. So that is really what we've been teaching. Uh, we've been teaching together seven years at Columbia before we wrote the book. And you know, we started to really unpack you know, we started with the quantitative part. Why can't people make better, smarter, faster decisions? Hmm. And, you know, it really comes down to, um, you know, this concept of fear. Um, it almost ties in with what we were just talking uh, previously in terms of, um, you know, how do you ensure success of your career? You know, well, people mistakenly think that if I make the perfect decision, 
you know, I'm going to move forward. And, you know, what happens is that, you know, fear of, you know, I'm not going to make a perfect decision or this decision isn't going to be reversible. It's going to impact my career. It's going to impact my next project. It's going to impact my personal brand. And therefore, what you wind up getting is people swirl. Give me one more analysis. Run, you know, could you run one more pivot table? Grab me one more Excel sheet. Exactly. And, you know, let's have three more meetings on this. And then maybe we'll get to oh, two. two <laughs> I'm already tired. <laughs> so, Paul, uh, I've been told throughout my career, if I apply first principles uh, and I, I can get to the grounded truth, I will find perfect data. But you three are telling us that Perfect data isn't so perfect. Uh, does perfect data exist? I'm not even sure I could define perfect data. Um, <laughs> I, look, I, I think at the end of the day, building on what the other guy said, it, it's, you know, think of a movie, follow the money. A journalist will say, follow the money. Follow look at what money. a VC does. They want to know that your technology is a good technology stack if you're a startup. Yeah. But every good VC will say, I invested in the people. Yeah. I don't know what number it is that they looked at for that. Mm. There isn't a number. So they have some level of intuition around this is the right group. This is the group that will stick together, actually building on the one of the points in the prior conversation. This is a group that I can trust, that I know will persevere and work through the problems. There's no number that tells you that. So mm. an investor... Most investors, whether they realize it or not, are balancing that data view. You know, what's the Tam Sam Som for this business opportunity? What is the the reality of this tech stack and, and so forth? But then looking to say, is this the right moment in time? Do these people have a feel for the business? And are these people that I can work with? Right? So no, it's, it's a great point. Yeah. No, it's a great point, right? And and some of the things that you guys are talking about are really how to effectively frame the problem for stakeholders. And more importantly, how do you synthesize intelligence from incomplete information? Are we like our own GANS model? Like, like what, what do we do? How do we trust that? So, <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I think it's important to even, even define what synthesis is. Um, you know, and often we, we summarize, uh, you know, which is simply the data. And let's be clear, when we're talking about data, it's not just quantitative data, it's all the information, any inputs you get. And, you know, people think the, if they take, you know, the first step in terms of taking all those inputs and simply organizing it, categorizing it, great, let me go and present that. That's summary. Summary will not get you, you know, uh, to a better decision. So mm -hmm. synthesis is data plus judgment. And that plus judgment mm. is so critical. And that judgment, you could call that intuition, you could call it experience. Yeah. But whenever someone does a piece of analysis, whenever someone delivers a presentation, you know, really over index on that synthesis, that data plus judgment, and really uh, diminish the just the summary. And uh, Oded, I know uh, you also have a, a great point around summary versus synthesis. Yeah, I mean, we, we tend to see, and very much uh, often from, from analysts, right? Analysts go and report data, they report the, the what's in the table. In fact, there is a, a type of person we like to call the Seymours. These are the, are the ones who in every single meeting would have only one uh, th single thing to say. I want to see more data. <laughs> and we need to strive to get more of the 
discussions in the table of not just the what, what's in the data, but so what, what does it mean? And now what, what are we going to do about it? And, and that's really what get, gets us from the data and from the just the information towards these uh, synthesis. The other thing you mentioned that I want to touch on is uh, um, this notion of how do we interrogate data? How do we look at data? And we, again, there is a myth. There is a myth that if you want to interrogate data, you need to do it from a statistical point of view, from did you use the right three-letter acronyms, you know, fancy, shiniest tool. The people who actually interrogate data well are those with the context, as those who actually know the business, know the environment. They look at the data and they say, this just doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. And that's intuition. That's, that's where intuition plays a role. Again, we by no means mean you know send the data away we actually mean look at the data contrast it with your intuition and ask yourself what do i see then so you're all teaching students and future entrepreneurs and ceos and business leaders how do you teach them to build that intuition muscle how do you teach yeah. them to go from reflexive thinking to reflective thinking where there is contextual intelligence around uh how they absorb data and analyze and and improve their decision velocity, which is hopefully the goal of everyone reading your book. How do you build that muscle? How do you put in the reps so you're able to have a bit of critical thinking and not just respond to data, but try to truly understand what it means and what you should be doing uh, as a result of it? So we give them some frameworks, of course, which we can, we can discuss. But at the end of the day, this is about culture and confidence, right? People have intuition. And there's a lot of folks like me and, and, and Oded and Chris who have the ability to, to dive into the numbers. But what are you listening to? And do you realize that decision-making is a team sport? So, uh -huh. at, yes, as you go through that, what, tell me one decision that's made that it was one single person that made a decision and everybody was on board and don't you say three should be advising a social network i know yeah i think and a blue check well. thing or a great check could, could, i'm not could mentioning some names help. i'm not mentioning names <laughs> nope that's not going to go well anyway Speaking but, of intuition yeah um, I, i'm not going to mention names I, uh, but, but it is a team sport and it is building that allowing you to listen to yourself Think but about Paul, this. But Paul, there's, always, the, there's, no. always a, there's always a team captain. Like, sure. You know, so how do you, what's the, the balance? Who's the conductor? Like, who's orchestrating? Yeah. Or, or is it choreography and more choreography and less orchestration where there is a, you know, a, a command and control person? Ooh, yeah. yeah. Well, we, we, we always say the, the smartest person in the room isn't the one with the answer. It's the one with the question. So, you know, yes, there, there could be a team lead. There could be a natural, you know, hierarchical order on, on paper. But if you really want to see who's leading that 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 team, and it could could be a, a baton that's handed off, mm -hmm. you know, look at the person that's asking the question. And you know, why do we say that? Because the person that asks the question, they're deeply engaged, they're thinking critically, mm -hmm. and they're also open to and and they're demonstrating a curious mind. I think the other important thing about questions is in that team sport, in that meeting, are you creating the space for a different way of thinking? Uh, are you opening the, the the aperture as opposed to you come in and, hey, I run all this analysis and at a 95% confidence interval, the answer is five. Where do you go with that? <laughs> Versus, um, what, you know, one, one of the, the techniques that, that we teach, how do you create that culture? 
um, we teach a series of questions and they're deceptively simple questions. And one question is, um, what surprised you? The next time you see a data point, the next time someone puts a presentation in front of you, say, you know, let's have a discussion. Tell me what surprised you. That's an excellent question. Wow. And and the reason is you're you're giving them permission to to tell them what they didn't you they didn't expect to see or what you wanted to hear. So this wow. concept of and, and that's just and we actually practice that. And I I guarantee you, you go and you ask that, you know. Um, in a meeting, um, in your next discussion, hey, what surprised you about the 300th episode? Um, you're going to change the dialogue versus, hey, was that good? Mine is Ray hasn't replaced me, which is pretty awesome. Uh, I want to turn the question back at you. Three of you working together, long, hard hours, days, weeks, months, years. What surprised you about the outcome, your book? Um, was there something that surprised you in the process of writing it? There is one of these questions that we actually, uh, I don't know if it was a full surprise, but, but it's, I think it's an important, it was a, a surprise, I think, in, the, in, the, in terms of the, the result. We asked people um, across the many, again, at this point, thousands of, of executives and executives to be that we have taught, and we asked them, where do you see the biggest gap in your organization when it comes to make decisions with data? So from the data aspect, which a priori you may say, well, it has to do with the data. It has to do with either the data itself or the nerds that analyze the data, right? It's the kind of the quants of the, of the organization, right? Yeah. Uh, but what we hear from them is that the, the issue is actually not in the data or the analysis. The, is, the issue is in we, we don't frame the problem and then we never convert the whatever whatever we get out of it into actions. It's really less in the Q part of, of quantitative intuition and more in the I part of quantitative intuition. It's much wow. more in the intuition than in the in the quantitative part. And that, that was a surprise. Again, by the time we, we went into it, into writing the book, that was already something we've been gelling with for quite a while because we've been teaching this for a while. But originally that was a surprise. Again, the way of, the, of data came and the issues were not about data analytics. When it comes to making decisions with data, it's more about the leadership skills. It's more about how do we ask questions like uh, what surprised you? Yeah, I just saw a video from Jeff Bezos and, he, and in the video he said, all the important decisions I've made in my life have come from intuition and my gut, not data, which was, yeah. uh, it was, you know, because I view them as a pretty super ML, AI, data analytics company. Everything they do, yeah. working backwards, reverse engineering, the six page memo that they write, it's so detailed, so rich with context. And yet he said all the big decisions he made were driven by intuition. So. He has a related statement to that. He says, whenever you see data and the data contradicts your anecdotes, most likely your anecdotes are right. And <laughs> which, is, which is exactly this idea of surprise. What surprised you, right? Yeah, because at the end of the day, what is a surprise? Surprise means that you have intuition and then came data and data and intuition do not match. No, That's it's, really it's amazing. It, no, it's amazing because what you're doing is basically you're removing the false positives and false negatives in the signal. You're looking for exception based as opposed to a stream of data and you're shortcutting the ability to get to what you guys are calling QI, right? And what I really want to, we'd be remiss in this whole interview, but not talking about what is QI and quantitative intelligence. So tell us about QI. So. Oded, do you want to yeah, QI is really, it's built out of three pillars. It's the ability to make decisions in it, within complete information by doing three things and three pillars that we discuss in the book and, and techniques that we teach around precise questioning. Again, the smartest person in the room is the, is the one with the great questions, right? Is the, 
the ability to frame frame the issue. That's pillar number one. Pillar number two has to do with contextual ana analysis, putting the data in the context of the business and interrogating the data again from that perspective, as opposed to from the p-values and the statistical type of perspective of the data. And finally, something we already talked about, which is synthesis, synthesizing that information in order to make it the decision. And each one of these pillars has a great deal of intuition, not just data, right? I mean, I need to frame the problem that's primarily intuition and, and business acumen. Contextual analysis, the combination of data intuition and synthesis is yet again, judgment plus data. My last question to you, uh, great storyteller, researcher, Brené Brown, uh, in her TED talk once said, great stories are stories that have data with a soul. When you hear that, well, how do you interpret that? What do you think she meant when she said data with a soul? Well, first off, I want to steal it. So <laughs> with, that, with attribution. With attribution. No, it's so not we, creative comments. Yeah, there you go. So when we, when we teach, we actually do uh, an entire session on storytelling. Hmm. Because at the end of the day, um, not telling the story and not making sure that it lands with different constituents a CIO versus a CTO or a CMO are going to care about the different things. A business line leader is going to care about something different. So you have to make sure that you are connecting with that person and that what you are telling them will move their business forward. Yeah. So the storytelling is at the epicenter. And I, I love that comment. Thank you so much. Yeah. No, thank you so much. Uh, we've learned a lot here. The book is and a very, very important book for everyone to read. Uh, if you haven't a chance to catch it, Decisions Over Decimals. Uh, and we're here with Paul Magnon, Christopher Frank, and of course, um, you know, our ability to actually get this out is, is really important. And of course, with Odette Netzer. And uh, thank you so much for uh, being on the show and on episode 300. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank, thank you, you, sir. Congratulations. Thank you. We could have uh, spent the uh, entire hour uh, talking about decision, decimals to decisions. That's such a such a big topic. And uh, oh wow, look at this! This is all. Why can't we do this every show, Ray? Okay, <laughs> I, I, I I'm going to defer to you, Ray. But here we are with uh, some of our most amazing and and favorite guests. Uh, I just want to say we started the show February of. 2016, uh, Ray and I, and today we're celebrating our 300th episode. We just concluded 925 interviews. Our first guest on the show, this is February 2016, so six years ago, is Whitney Johnson. And Whitney Johnson is CEO of Disruption Advisors, Thinker's 50 recognized top thinker in the world, I believe number four, best-selling author of several books, I wish I was in my other house because it behind me would be a bunch of Whitney's books that are stacked right behind me every week. Uh, Ray, listen to this. Whitney has one point, nearly 1.8 million followers on LinkedIn. And, wow. uh, and uh, please follow her at, at Johnson Whitney. And thank you for being our first guest. Ray and I deliberately debated so for many, many weeks who should launch our show. And uh, we were proud that you agreed to be the first person on Disrupt, and no one knew what Disrupt was. <laughs> so thank you for being here. Well, happy birthday. And it seems very fitting, disrupting yourself, Disrupt TV, you know, sort of twins separated at birth. So congratulations <laughs> on your amazing show, what you built it to become. And I'm happy to be here. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, we also have John Reed, who's uh, 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 co-founder of Diginomica, a massive media personality in the technology space. He's a robot blogger and analyst advisor. And uh, please follow John on, on, on Twitter at John ERP. Uh, we have Heather Clancy, who's the editorial director of GreenBiz, co-author of Niche Down, an amazing book and one of the world's leading sustainability expert. You can follow uh, Heather at Green Tech Lady. And last but not least, we have Gravinda Singh Sahani, strategic uh, advisor and chief growth office at Wipro, a company of, I think, almost 300,000 people, a small company, Wipro. And he's arguably... Um, our community leader at Disrupt TV because uh, he he shares more about our guests than Ray and I. <laughs> so, and I believe uh, Disrupt has helped you build your home library uh, over the past few years. So, uh, thank you because you always tweet when we have a guest. I'm sure the decimals to decisions will be the next book that we'll see in your library. So. I already ordered and it's coming at 10 p.m. tomorrow. <laughs> you got a big thumbs up from Paul there in the green room. I can see that. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. <laughs> so It's amazing to have you. John, you usually come on the show and you have props, you have analysis, you, you riff on Ray and I and try to stomp us in some way. So what do you have up your sleeves today? Uh, yeah, I got a little surprise for y'all today. I'm worried when a media founder comes yeah. on our show. And, no, we're like, yeah, what's going got, on here? I got a little surprise, and uh, I, I want to whip through it because I want to make sure everyone here gets a chance to chime in. But I had to think about what was the key to the show's success after 300 episodes, and I came up with nine things. Can you, can, now, can you before you start, can I just say... Just before you start, uh, you know, uh, this show wouldn't happen without our producers. Uh, and we have, uh, well, L, uh, 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 maybe it's in your top nine, but L might, and Hannah. Be, yeah, yeah, yeah. You might be surprised to see them revisit. But anyway, you're saying. Uh, okay. No, our producer, El Froze and Hannah uh, uh, you know, we can't, we, we can't put, we just show up, right? And I show, they kind of hand us the, the script in, on a silver platter. Our guests hopefully feel super comfortable because they know about the show and the show flow. So I just want to say without Elle and Hannah, we wouldn't even reach 30, let alone 300. So anyway, go ahead. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. Um, I, I, I thought through the nine. Now, now, a few of the nine I had to eliminate as contenders, but I decided to show the audience all of them, okay? <laughs> so um, number nine, on the top reasons your show has been successful, I had the metaverse. But then I decided that wasn't the case. But do you guys do you guys remember when I put these on? Yes. Uh, yeah, yes. We, we, we've had some great metaverse discussions on this show, but I had to eliminate that one as a possibility. Number eight, I had digital duopolies. But then I decided, no, that's not possibly it because, well, there's a pretty good book about that that I, that I think you should probably read. But um, but the digital duopolies like have nothing to do with with what Disrupt TV does, and in fact, Disrupt TV can't be stopped by the digital duopolies. So that can't be that. And then um, number seven was blockchain, but I had to eliminate that also because blockchain isn't immutable, but Disrupt TV might be. So wow. <laughs> so so then Ray, we need our own coin. Then, 
just can't over leverage it. But we As you can see, I was struggling a little bit. I was struggling a little bit to get to the heart of this show's appeal, but I I was getting there. Then I decided it might be Vala's Twitter following. Yes, but I had yes. to eliminate that also because there are a few people that watch the show that don't follow Vala on Twitter. Now, <laughs> now I I do follow Vala on Twitter as I'm sure all of you do. But anyway, I had to eliminate that one. Uh, number five was ambient orchestration, <laughs> and I had to eliminate that also because Ray's never adequately explained what that is. So, <laughs> so that that didn't count either. But I did feel like that one we started to get a little closer. And number four was talent. And by talent, I mean backstage talent, the people that run your show that you already mentioned, Elle and Hannah and her team. And there, there were awesome. many that came before that also did a terrific job in this role. And they treat us awesome and they make everything look easy and they deserve a lot of credit. So that was number four. Super and number three, number three was awesome guests that you can learn from obviously um with the possible exception of some of my segments i've learned a ton uh at these episodes so that that was really definitely a contender i and can't believe that's not number one i can't yeah. well well hang on we're, we're getting we're getting closer i think um number two was the format and actually i think it really works because you have about 20 minutes with each guest it's a deep dive you can really get into the content as we saw today but if you ever had a boring segment, and I don't think you've ever had one in the history of the show, of course, there's never been a boring segment, you move on from it. So I think it's a really good format. <laughs> and then number one, by far, is vibe. You guys, the two of you, have created a vibe that works. Yeah. And it's a vibe that has intellectual curiosity. It's fun. You allow the guests to be themselves. And we really appreciate this opportunity to have this type of discussion because honestly, there's a lot of crummy enterprise video out there. And every time I'm on the show, I feel like I'm going to really learn a ton. And also, thanks for taking a chance on me and my unorthodox approach to content. But you do that with a lot of your guests, and we appreciate it. Oh, wow. Hey, look, we got oh, someone wow. in the green room that oh, it's a surprise. Take a look at this. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my God. Aubrey, yeah, she was on my list of the unsung heroes of Disrupt TV. How you doing? Aubrey, what the first two hundred episodes? I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know the exact number, but the, a, a bulk of our show uh, when we launched was with Aubrey. So great to see you. So yes, I didn't about this, so I'm not dressed up, but I wanted to say hi. <laughs> that, uh, I re I remember the you know we've been on our I think fifth or sixth platform. Um, we kept disrupting ourselves. A couple of the companies were startups and they went under. A <laughs> uh, couple of them are now multi-billion dollar uh, public companies that we decided to move away from. And Aubrey, at the beginning, we were just bouncing from platform to platform trying to figure out our format. So it was pretty, pretty awesome roller coaster, roller coaster ride. Oh, uh, Sun, Sun Yu. <laughs> great, to, great to see you. Sun Yu, uh, author of Iconic Brands author of the latest book, Friction, uh, Forbes contributor, featured in all the major, major media outlets that I know of, um, and, and a keynote speaker. Good to see you, Sonia. <laughs> oh, it's so good to be with you guys. Thanks for uh, having me on. And I just, I don't know what you guys talk about. I'm just jumping in, but I will say this. 
I write about iconic brands, and you guys have such an iconic podcast, video cast. Oh, uh, I, I think it's uh, if you think about signatures, you got signature personalities married with a signature format, and you have what I call lasting, timeless relevance because it's 300 episodes. So you guys are like totally iconic. So Bow down to you wow. guys. <laughs> uh, uh, L, we need to do this every episode because I, I, need this, I need this positive affirmation. Speaking of positive affirmation, Heather Clancy has been on our show a dozen times plus. Um, and so one of our most frequent, because we talk about sustainability, we talk about all the amazing articles at Green Biz, and you've just been a, a, a titan of the industry in terms of marrying innovation and sustainability in a purposeful way. Thank you so much for coming on the show for so many years, so many time. And uh, it's it's always great to see you. It's just great My to see pleasure. You. My pleasure. Absolutely. Are you working on another book? Is there any breaking news? I'm not working on another book right now. No. Okay. Because the last one was awesome. And I just saw Chris a couple of weeks ago yep. with Snow Leopard, his latest book. And right. uh, it's I just immediately thought, wow, and Chris and Heather should... Uh, collaborate and write another one. Um, I'm, I'm, Heather, I think I've got my own in me somewhere. So that's what I'll be focusing on. I love that. Well, I Heather, you, that. you've been covering COP27 very actively. I've been watching you. So this is uh, very, yep. very interesting. Very busy week. So, very busy very week. Busy week. So, uh, yep. but thanks, for, thanks for bringing that perspective to, to our viewers. Yep. And I think that's a very, very important perspective. You've been ahead of the curve for about, you're always 10 years ahead. So, so we've got a lot to learn. You're like in Horizon 2, Horizon 3, which is yep. awesome. Thank you for including ESG in your awards this year. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so Whitney can, Whitney, can you share with us how does someone get to 2 million followers on LinkedIn? What do you, what yeah, do you, I want to know that. What do you, <laughs> you're, you're amazing. You're amazing. Other, being, other than being awesome. Which yeah, is yeah. Other than, like, can, is there something <laughs> that mere mortals can do to grow their LinkedIn? Yeah. Well, yeah. So thank you. And we're losing followers on Twitter every day. We don't know why. I know. <laughs> <laughs> They're leaving the platform. Yeah, yeah. They're flocking away. Um. So, so the, the, the short answer is, is I've been on LinkedIn for a very long time and had the good fortune to be a part of their LinkedIn influencer program, I guess, seven or eight years ago. And that, and when that first came out, they were very supportive around the LinkedIn influencers. So awesome. it gave me a little bit of, of a privilege, a little bit of a boost for which I'm very grateful. And your content is fantastic. And Thank you. Gurinder, who, who, you know, religiously references great content on the show. I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, the best book that you've read in the last 12 months. Oh, <laughs> guest on the show. <laughs> wow. Maybe we should give him three. Uh, he's, listen, he, he's, he's head of analyst. He's head That's of analyst me. relations at Wipro. So he so, always gets tough questions. That's just plain. <laughs> and in charge of strategy and growth. Yeah. So Ivan, by the way, Ivan. present company excluded. Let's just okay. say present company. I will, yes. I will flip the question and I will say oh, three books that are read. Yes. And I want you to get those writers or authors on your show. Why don't oh, I do it ooh. that way? Okay. Oh, so, well done. One, one is uh, Shaka Senghor. I think we should get him on the show. Okay. I think his, his, his story and um, uh, a lot of it is personal narrative. And, okay. and, and I think we should, we should definitely get him. Okay. Uh, next is a book. I don't know if these three authors have been on the show, but they actually have a new book coming out on 15th. Uh, this one was referenced by 
Anil Bushri Ray when he was in uh, oh, CEO of Workday, co-founder of Workday. 2019, yep. uh, I think, Fireside Chat at CCE. And I think he referenced this book. And I was... So we've had like, Anil on the show, but you're saying... Yes, the, but these are... Uh, this is Ajay, Ajay, Avi, and Joshua. Joshua and Avi, yep. yeah. yeah. And they have a yep, new yep, book yep. coming on 15. So there's a reason to get them. And then another one would be uh, Tina Opie and Beth Livingston, uh, Shared Sisterhood. Shared so, sisterhood. Yeah. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Ray and I will reach out to them. Uh, and 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 every everyone that you had on the show, I think it's very tough for me to yeah. rank. So you know because you, you learn from. And, and, and I hey, we got beyond, suggestions. Beyond, that's even better. Yeah, so. That's even I think better. beyond the book, you build a relationship with them on their social. So it's if I if I read Whitney's book, I also follow what she's doing on her podcast, and it's just the ongoing experience and you know when I, whenever i meet soon i think about positive friction on how friction is actually important so and although he also problem. reminds me of the of the hotline for uh, uh ice cream you know so popsicle, well popsicle. popsicle headline. <laughs> yes 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 that's awesome so maybe maybe we should have a disrupt tv dinner maybe first week of december in new york yes we'll get people together yes. I don't I'm know. Gonna, I'm going to be in New York a bunch of times in the next few weeks. That's I think you and I place. are going to coordinate schedules and we'll figure this out. So uh, a little uh, fan any, dinner, any fun other, dinner. Any other guest recommendations um, uh, that we should be? Yes, soon, please. So I was at CCE and I met a couple of the Hawker students and they blew me away. And I think it would be great to think about having either high school students or um, wow. college students uh, that are doing amazing things and just kind of hearing from the next generation in terms of, you know, not only what they're doing, but kind of what motivates them, what excites them, what kind of they're worried about. And I, I think as we, you know, because we, we tend to be a little bit of an echo chamber, I, I think just to take a, a, a get a pulse of what, what's going to be around the corner, I, I think they may know more than we do. That's a great, that's a great, uh, a few years ago, as some of you know, I hosted the first ever hackathon at the Vatican. And I, we, there were uh, about 60 colleges and universities uh, at St. Peter's Basilica for a week competing. And, and I'm telling you, I was on a, on a, on a positive high after, at, after that experience, mm -hmm. thinking how bright the future is going to be when I saw these typically 20 to 24 year olds just amazing work. Uh, we just have to figure out, uh, uh, you know, maybe there's a hackathon we can sponsor, Ray, or, you know, find a way to uh, you yeah. know, get, get, get young, young future entrepreneurs and students on our show. That's a great suggestion. That's a great suggestion. So, so the, uh, the implosion of Twitter, I first thought, well, yeah, let's get some disgruntled Twitter executives on the show to get the real story. But, um, but I changed my mind. I think what would be even more interesting would be to get some sort of next generation social media founders on the show to talk about alternatives, what's out there. We all know about the importance of LinkedIn and, and, we, and we care about that platform. But I think looking at some of the new ones, I know Mastodon's been getting a lot of uh, mm -hmm. yep. uh, visibility these days, but I think it'd be really cool to bring on a few new ones on Disrupt TV and get a conversation going about kind of what's next for social, um, preferably platforms that aren't tied to crypto exchanges at the moment, but I think in mm -hmm. general, um, what could go wrong? You know, it's, yeah, I can't think of anything that could go wrong there. But anyhow, that's when you make, there's been a, a four or five major disasters this year in the crypto space. But that's a whole other show. Yeah, this is it's a whole other show. It's been yeah. an awful year. Uh, but this is why trust has to be your number one core value. Uh, and yep. 
it can't be a cliche. And uh, I would I would love to have Mr. Musk on on the show. I'm just you know curious to see. He might you know, be a little busy. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he's busy, but uh, but uh, but definitely we'll get Jason or David, maybe we'll, we'll see what they're up to. I'm gonna suggest there's a fellow named Gary Cooper out of Chicago, he's an entrepreneur. Oh, yeah. His company is called Reaply, they're an amazing company. They use uh, enterprise software to help people share assets that they wouldn't like massive, like massively expensive lab equipment and so forth. He's just he's disrupting it, he's one of the um, most exciting entrepreneurs that I've come across in a long time. So oh, terrific. Yeah. Oh, terrific. We'll check Reaply out. R-H-E-A-P-L-Y. And in that same show, get uh, Francis Fry, the authority on trust. Francis you know, Fry at Harvard in, yeah. is one of my one of my back, favorite, yeah. favorite guests. And I remember Francis Fry reminding Ray and I that it should be inclusion and diversity not diversity and inclusion because she said if yes. you have inclusion diversity will come yeah uh yes. and that's has stuck in my head and she's been on was on the show maybe two and a half years ago three years ago but she is amazing and a really funny funny professor uh she made she made us laugh uh, and yeah francis fry is amazing she's amazing yeah. Well, we're really excited to have you all here. Thank you for being part of the family. And, you know, episode 300 really means a lot to both of us. Uh, you know, we couldn't do it without you. And of course, our wonderful community of folks that are listening out there. So thank you so much. Congratulations, guys. Awesome. Happy anniversary. Thank you, Arby. Thank you, Whitney, Heather. Thank you. Well done. So, John, Congratulations, thank you, John. guys. So proud to be part of this. Thank you. Thank you so much. John, your <laughs> list was epic. Epic, John. Thanks, thank bro. you so much. Thank you. No worries. Uh, wow. Uh, just absolutely gobsmacked. Uh -oh. by, by All right. <laughs> by, <laughs> by the, nice work, fellas. Excellent. That, that was awesome. That was awesome. It's back to us, too. Well, I don't know what to do after this. What are you up to next? <laughs> so, I'm going to No, New but Bala, hey, I want to thank you. <laughs> this is this is amazing. I mean, you know, we both spend our Fridays here and uh, really sharing stuff with everybody. And it's uh, been a massive commitment on both our ends. So thank you so much. It's always been fun. And, uh, you know, thank you, Elle, uh, for, you know, wonderful producing. It's uh, It's been smooth. We, we don't, like, we it don't really even has. know, like, we don't even know how it works anymore. Right? Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, when you say Al or Hannah are on vacation, I get a cold sweat and I have trouble sleeping because I know <laughs> we, without without them, the show can't exist. I can't think of so, anybody else to spend my Friday. We should bring Elle in here, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there she thank is. Thank you, guys. There we go. <laughs> the, the, the senior producer of the, the most successful enterprise podcast in the world. That's Oh, awesome. you're too kind. <laughs> <laughs> um, and thanks to Elle, uh, although we're celebrating 300, I, I'd be remiss if I don't mention 301 next week. Because we have oh, a yeah. 301 pretty, is coming. Pretty, pretty so pretty amazing lineup. We have Daphne Jones, Fortune 500 board member, author of Win When They Say You Won't, BJ Fogg, founder and director of Stanford's Behavior Design Lab, uh, BJ yes, Fogg's Boot Camp, and New York Times bestselling author of Tiny Habits. So BJ Fogg is a legend. And Ron Miller, uh, one of our favorites who hasn't been on the show uh, for a minute, uh, enterprise reporter at TechCrunch. So Ron Miller, BJ Fogg, Daphne Jones, episode 301. 
And uh, I'm not going to ask you to recap this this episode because we have no, we are not doing that. But, <laughs> yeah. no, but hey, we're going to all see everyone else in the green room if you're left uh, who joined us in the back end of the show. But thank you, everybody, for episode 300. So thank you, everyone. If it, yeah, if it's Friday. It's- oh.